0: What is going on, player profiler posse? You know me, I am Hilo, and this is First Mover. Before we jump into this week three episode, a couple of apologies. First of all, I am running solo today. And second of all, as you can tell, I am displaced from my normal podcasting studio. We had a catastrophic flood in the upstairs bathroom late last week on Friday, that uh, my office is located right below so we have some flooding we have some fans in there some water remediation going on so i'm up in my closet and we're going to make ourselves nice and comfy we're going to talk about some football because that's what matters right now not the flooding football and we're back you know what the deal is i am hilo and this is first mover So as we jump into week three, let's take a quick recap of where we've come and where we currently are. Week one was the you-know-nothing Jon Snow week. We knew that we didn't know much about teams, about snap rates, about depth chart battles, about how offensive tendencies and philosophies were going to play out in a game about how teams were going to react when they were punched in the mouth. And this was really the first test for teams where they're getting pushed back on. You know, we talk about preseason, and that shows us, that does give us some data from which to work, but that doesn't tell us the whole picture. That doesn't give us the whole picture, doesn't tell us the whole story. So in week one, we harped on the fact that we needed to be embracing a little bit additional uncertainty and variance, In week two, if week two was we know nothing, week two was we think we know more than we know because we had a very small sample from which to work. We're trying to take that small sample and project that into a full season, primarily in week two. So week two was another week where we had to be honest with ourselves that we probably don't know as much as we think we know. So, welcome to week three. And why did we go through that? Well, entering week three, we're starting to get a little bit more robust data set and sample size to be able to make some conclusions about teams. We still have to be relatively careful because we are not we have not seen teams operate in a robust sample of varying game environments. As in, we've seen some teams control both games. We've seen some teams struggle in both games. We've seen some teams play shootouts. We've seen some teams play absolute slugfests. So while we do have some data to be able to project how we expect teams to behave moving forward, we don't have a full picture just yet. So that's going to be important to us because there are some expected game environments and you'll see it on the screen here. We've got the game totals pulled up. We do have some game environments for week three that are appearing to be different than what we've seen these teams play in up to this point. So let's go through those for everyone listening uh, without the video at home. The current game totals the opening lines of the games on week three's DFS slate. We have the New England Patriots visiting the New York Jets. We know who these teams are expected to be, whether for better or worse. That game total is instilled at a 36.5 over under currently. Continuing that, we have the New Orleans Saints and the Green Bay Packers with a 43.5 game total. Indianapolis Colts with the uncertainty as far as Anthony Richardson. He has looked phenomenal when he's on the field, three rushing scores, but he hasn't finished either of the games, and he emerged from week two with a concussion. That game totals currently at 44.0. We've got a one-and-one Buffalo Bills team going on the road facing a Washington Commanders team who has surprised us to this point at 2-0. That game totals at 44.5. Well, Houston Texans at Jacksonville Jaguars, 44.0. Starting to see a trend here. These are some pretty low game totals. Tennessee Titans, Cleveland Browns, 40.5. Nick Chubb done for the year. Tennessee Titans, the number one rush defense. They have been over the previous three seasons. Now we're getting into the meat and potatoes of where we expect the field to be going this week. The Los Angeles Chargers and the Minnesota Vikings, game total of 54, the highest of the 2023 season to this point. The Denver Broncos and the Miami Dolphins, game total of 48.0. Again, starting to get into some stuff where we might expect the field to be going here. Atlanta Falcons, Detroit Lions, this one is relatively surprising to me. Game total of 46.0, that is the fourth highest on the slate. The Carolina Panthers and Seattle Seahawks, game total of 42.5. The Chicago Bears and the Kansas City Chiefs. This one is interesting. We're going to talk about this one here in a minute, but it is instilled currently at a game total of 48.0 with the Chiefs favored by a hefty 13 points. And then the final game on the slate, the Dallas Cowboys and the Arizona Cardinals over under of 43 and a half with the Cowboys instilled as 12 point favorites. So when we look at the overall composition of this slate, it is very clear that the field is going to have the most interest in this game with the hefty game total, the Los Angeles Chargers and the Minnesota Vikings. We've had two offenses that are extremely competent. We have two defenses who can give up points, and this is a game total at 54.0 with a nice tidy spread of a pick'em, Vegas doesn't know. Vegas is unsure. So this is the game environment that I expect the field to have the most interest in. And there are some interesting ways to kind of attack it. So we're going to jump into now that we kind of have a broad macro perspective of this, the old will say the, the overall composition of the slate and what that means to us as we are building DFS rosters. So now we're pulling up DraftKings. Let's check out some of these. I have the top four games highlighted. We're going to check out those first before we continue our exploration and potentially find some areas for uh, some hidden upside that we could pick out on the slate. But before we get into that, We're going to hear from the Podfather real quick about the DFS Dominator.
1: DFS getting harder every year, but we're here to make it easier with the DFS Dominator because I know a lot of optimizers keep coming out. Oh, our optimizer. What about this optimizer? But that optimizer. Well, we have a cash game optimizer that leverages the projections from Dario, Billy, the award-winning projections at playerprofiler.com and builds the best lineups for cash games that have both upside and stability because that's what you want. It's a couple clicks, boom, boom, boom. You get the best possible lineup for your cash games. But for tournaments, traditional optimizers don't work. That's why we have a lineup genius, which takes you through the process of building lineups the way they should be built. Which quarterbacks do you want to be overweight on? then building stacks, then setting runbacks, then optimizing, and generating up to 150 lineups that you can easily import into DraftKings, into FanDuel. That's the DFS Dominator. It's only $45 a year. Not not a week. A a year. A year. Just go to Player Profiler, click on the DFS Dominator from the menu, and you won't be sorry.
0: Welcome back, y'all. Go check out the DFS Dominator. Build those cash game lineups. Build those GPP lineups. Get that correlation. Let's go. So looking at the slate, again, I've highlighted the top four expected game environments. And again, these are the game environments with a game total around or over our kind of magic number of 47.0. We know this number to be important to the betting market, and we kind of use that. Uh, or it's good practice to use that threshold um, when we're dissecting a slate. And me being the game theory guy, I want to know where I expect the field to be going. I want to break down all the games. I want to understand and project where I expect the field to be going so that I can tie those field observations, those expected field tendencies into my decision-making process for the slate. So that's kind of why my process starts at the top expected overall game environments. I want to have a solid understanding of where I expect the field to be going. So in those four game environments, we have the very clear top, clear and away top expected game environment in the Chargers and the Vikings. In that discussion, I we opened... This session, this podcast, week three, baby, we opened with the fact that we've gone through two very different DFS slates. The first one, we knew very little. The second one, we thought we knew more than we actually did. So in week three, that is extremely pertinent to one of these teams in this game in the Los Angeles Chargers. They opened the season with a very, very run-heavy attack against Vic Fangio's defense in Miami. We just expected them to kind of do that. We reasoned that, I should say, for the fact that we, Vic just kind of showed them the, showed them nickel sets. He showed them cover three. He showed them linebackers off the line of scrimmage. And we just saw Kellen Moore take that as I'm going to run against you. Now, fast forward to last week. And we had the Chargers facing a Tennessee Titans defense that has been the most pass funnel defense in the league over the last three seasons. They finished last season ranked number one in yards allowed per carry to opposing backfields. And we had Austin Eckler, who was out. Continuing that discussion. Brandon Staley, the head coach of the Los Angeles Chargers, yesterday on Monday said that there is no timeline for the expected return of Austin Eckler. So we should expect that Eckler is going to remain out. We might see a placement on injured reserve. That remains to be seen. If they were going to do that, I would have expected them to do that already. The fact that they didn't immediately place Austin Eckler on IR, to me, means that they didn't think he has to go there. So that means that they thought he could return within four weeks. So that is still the time frame that we're working with. His absence is probably, if I had to guess, and again, I'm no doctor, but his absence is probably going to be somewhere between two weeks and four weeks. That means he is highly unlikely to play in week three. So again, we have this setup where the Chargers... Adopted a very run heavy game plan in week one where they were showed that we have a game set up where the Chargers adopted a very pass heavy game plan in week two. You see Justin Herbert's pass attempts bumped up from 33 attempts to 41 attempts. And now we have an opponent in the Minnesota Vikings who we expect to play heavy rates of man coverage. We expect them to kind of try and get into Justin Herbert's face and disrupt drives via disrupting the quarterback. So to me, considering that we have this running back, backup running back, jumping into a greater share of the workload in Joshua Kelly, who was all hyped up, After his 16 for 91 and one on the ground in week one. Went into a difficult matchup on the ground in week two. Underperformed. And now gets a more neutral matchup on the ground. Joshua Kelly is extremely interesting to me at 5,400. We could see a field overreaction to the fact that he struggled last week. And he is priced only 5,400. So Josh Kelly is early week. One of the top plays on the board. I expect him to lead the backfield once again. You look at his snap rates in week two without Austin Eckler. He played 79% of the offensive snaps for the Los Angeles Chargers. So this is a guy who we expect to be a borderline workhorse back in a matchup that is now non-prohibitive for running backs. If there is that recency bias from the field, and we won't know this until later in the week when we see ownership expectations, but if there is that field bias of the fact that he disappointed in week two, this will be a play I will be on fairly heavily. Also in that game, Justin Herbert and Kirk Cousins present some interesting paths to upside. We have a Los Angeles Chargers defense that on paper looks like one of the top five units in the league. But schematically, they continue to be exposed. And this is probably due to Brandon Staley's defensive design. And Staley took over defensive play calling this season after this team underperformed over the previous two seasons. But we didn't see almost any improvement in that defense. That defensive scheme, this is in stark contrast to a team like the Arizona Cardinals where they have zero talent, but Jonathan gallons, Jonathan Gannon's defensive scheme is allowing them to generate pressure, to confuse quarterbacks, to stick in games. And if it wasn't for Brian Dable taking over play calling in the second half against the giants last week, the Cardinals might've had another game where they're allowing 10 points or less. So, so, Very, very stark contrast in how these defenses are run. Gannon's defense is overperforming their talent. Brandon Staley's defense continues to underperform their talent. So it's very clear why this game carries the top game total on the week. And it should be one where we're trying to pick and choose how we're going to attack it. When talking about... The Minnesota Vikings, you cannot get through the door unless you're talking about Justin Jefferson. He should be where we start. We have to, Justin Jefferson is one of the rare players in the league this year where we almost have to account for him on every single slate. His role is just that robust. We look at what he's done over the first two weeks of the season. He leads the league in receiving over 300 yards, 309 yards. He's seen 25 targets. That is second in the league only to... One puka nakua. (laughs) Oh man, that is. We did not think we were going to say that at any point in 2023, but here we are. He has caught 20 of 25 targets for 309 yards. But look over here, he has not found the end zone. So while Justin Jefferson has put up nice, tidy DFS scores of 27 points and 28.9 points over the first two weeks of the season. He has not provided a score that kind of put the slate out of reach. And he's priced at a point where he's got to be putting the slate kind of out of reach, being a player you had to have or you weren't winning anything. But in this matchup, we should expect another range of targets somewhere in the 10 to 15 target range. And if he's finding the end zone on that robust roll, he is going to put up a DFS score that you had to have. At some point, it's coming. Is it going to be this week? I don't know. But he makes a very, very interesting starting point to rosters in week three. You can do all kinds of different things from this point if you're attacking this game environment. You can look to the talented rookie, Jordan Addison, who continues to score touchdowns um, on busted coverages. This guy was the most pro-ready route runner or route technician will say coming out of this year's wide receiver draft class. And he has proven that he has proven to be a winner in the routes. he just keeps getting open to score long touchdowns, but he is a guy that is still playing behind a teammate that we want him to not be playing behind in 12 personnel and 21 personnel. So once he takes over the 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 jumbo the the two wide receiver set role from KJ Osborne, he is going to carry a lot of ceiling. KJ Osborne is just kind of this guy who won't go away. Six targets in week one, six targets in week two. Only thirty one yards and thirty four yards. He's had some drops, and this is a guy does not carry the same upside when compared to Justin Jefferson and Jordan Addison. So if we're stacking Kirk Cousins, the man who very rarely puts up 30 fantasy point games, but he did it last week against a very good Philadelphia defense. But this is a guy who's had 44 pass attempts in each of the first two weeks of the season. He threw two touchdowns in week one. He threw four touchdowns in week two. His passing yardage has been over that magic number of 300 passing yards each week. 344 in week one and 364 in week two. But if you look at those yardage totals, they are almost directly tied to Justin Jefferson. If Justin Jefferson, as the alpha in this offense, as the alpha in this league, if he is putting up a hefty yardage total, he is dragging Kirk Cousins along with him. So if I'm playing Justin Jefferson, I want to be considering that pairing with Kirk Cousins. And Cousins is a a guy that is more tied to game environment than a lot of the quarterbacks in the league in the sense that we don't necessarily think or expect Minnesota to be pushing the envelope unless they are kind of forced to do so. The good news here is we can kind of expect the Chargers to do so. So you can play Kirk Cousins with Justin Jefferson. I would never play Kirk Cousins without Justin Jefferson because his yardage is so almost strictly tied to Justin Jefferson. But the fact that Justin Jefferson is not going to score all the touchdowns for the Minnesota Vikings this year means that you can pair other players with Kirk Cousins outside of Justin Jefferson as well. So interesting dynamic to be able to stack multiple players from this offense. For me, it would start and end with Jordan Addison. And that is a play... That would be leveraging the fact that Addison is currently only playing in 11 personnel, but has room to grow should he start playing in 12 and 21 personnel when the team only has two wide receivers on the field. So that is the top game environment expected on the week. Let's look at some of these other game environments. We have Chicago and Kansas City. We expect Kansas City to score the most, uh, the bulk of the points from this game. They're currently game total set at 48 points, but Kansas City is instilled with a hefty 13 point spread. So do we expect one, Travis Kelsey to play more than the 65% of offensive snaps that he played in week two? I would guess most likely, yes, he's priced all the way up at 7,200. So when you get a tight end that's priced at that level, you need him to not only score the most points at the tight end position on the week, which Travis Kelsey is going to do at a fairly significant rate. You need him to blow all other tight ends out of the water because you were, uh, you were sinking a significant portion of your salary on this tight end position. That is basically Travis Kelsey and then everybody else. So when Travis Kelsey is on a main slate, he becomes one of the primary decision points on that slate. It can be any time, any slate throughout the season. And when he's on a slate, I ask myself, does he have a path to put the slate out of reach to provide a score at the tight end position that no other tight end is going to come close to? And how does that interact with the other pieces on the slate? So we know he missed week one. We know week two, he was more or less limited on his snap rate and involvement in the offense. He played around 65% of the offensive snaps. He scored a touchdown, saw nine targets, but put up a very modest yardage number and saw only four tar or four receptions in that surprising slugfest in Jacksonville. So Can Travis Kelsey one? Is he on the slate? Yes. Can he put the slate out of reach? Debatable, but we expect the Kansas city chiefs to score some points in what should be their softest matchup defensively this entire season. So can he put the slate out of reach? The answer to that question is, yeah, he has that within his range of outcomes. Another interesting piece of the tight end position is TJ Hawkinson. We didn't talk about him in that first, um, exploration of the chargers and the Vikings game environment. But this is a guy, obviously we know he's going to be involved in this offense. He was drafted as the tight end three overall in best ball. He has seen 17 targets has caught 15 of them for 101 yards. And those two touchdowns from last week, TJ Hawkinson is a guy that I would 100%. If I'm playing TJ Hawkinson, I would have him paired with his quarterback so another potential from that first game environment is to run something like Mare. the secondary and tertiary pieces from kansas city's offense i'm almost never going to play this season and here's why this team rotates their secondary pieces and their secondary pieces are everybody not named patrick mahomes and travis kelsey they rotate those secondary pieces more than any other team in the league. You look at their snap rates. Marquez Valdez-Scantling is typically playing between 60 and 80% of the offensive snaps. You have Sky Moore, who is now playing between 60 and 70% of the offensive snaps. Then you have four, five other names that are all seeing offensive snaps. From Kadarius Tony, all the way down to Justin Ross. So these are this is a team that is not necessarily built on being a concentrated offense anymore, as they were when they had Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. So what does that mean? That means that one of those players on a limited snap rate is going to have to provide a highly efficient game. So they're going to have to break 100 yards off of some broken play or some long something. And they're going to have to find the end zone multiple times in order to return a GPP worthy score while that might happen at some point this season, we saw it last year with Jarek McKinnon, where he went on this touchdown tirade. While that might happen, it's very, very, it's, it's likely to happen very, very infrequently. We'll put it that way. So these are players that I'm just simply not going to be playing very much. And when I am playing them, they're 100% going to be added to both Patrick Mahomes, and Travis Kelsey. I'm not looking to these guys to, to pull one-offs from. And the fact that the Chiefs have struggled over the first two games of the 2023 season with scoring only 20 points and losing to Detroit on the opener and then pulling out a 17-9 to victory. This team, Kansas City Chiefs, have scored only 37 points through two weeks of the season. That's on 39-41 and Patrick Mahomes' pass attempts. He's thrown only two touchdowns each game, has a pick each game. This is not what we're used to here. What is going on? Enter the Chicago Bears. What could be the worst defense in the league? This is a nice little get-right spot for old Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, and company. And there is definite room for Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, plus... To do some significant damage on this slate. Now again, it's difficult to find who that plus is. If going looking at expected involvement in this offense. Sky Moore is a very interesting piece. Because he is playing the second most offensive snaps of the wide receivers. We know that Marcus Valdez-Scantling is going to see a high snap rate. But we know he's playing this kind of wind sprint role in this offense. He is running downfield. He is manipulating opposing safeties and he's not always going to see a heavy target share in that role. But that role means that he's going to be running downfield and against the Chicago Bears, that could provide a path to some interesting ceiling potential. This is a guy who's underwhelmed two catches on two targets, 48 yards in week one. Two catches, three targets, 13 yards in week two. But this is a guy who has the role in this offense to put up 100 yards and a touchdown plus. So he makes a very interesting inclusion into this Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey deal that we're talking about here. Chicago Bears, I will not be going there. I went there last week. I played some DJ Moore in week two. And I did that in a game stack with Baker Mayfield and Mike Evans. Highly profitable for me. But I'm not going there this week because Mr. Jones will say, Mr. Jones is back for Kansas City. And he's going to wreck face up front. He's going to create havoc. And this is already a Justin Fields quarterback who has very little pocket awareness. He's probably going to take some sacks and have some disrupted drives. I don't see the reason to go here. If going to a Chicago Bear, I think it's almost too gross to say, I know, but I think Cole Komet might be our best bet. He's another guy who can do some damage with the ball in his hands. I'm not going there at this point early in the week, but if you go there, I think that's where I'm going. Now let's look turn our attention to this Atlanta and Detroit game. Let's get rid of these other games because I want to look at this game real quick. Atlanta and Detroit. We have to look at the team tendencies here. Kind of start our discussion there. We have a Detroit Lions team who is likely going to be without David Montgomery. He has a thigh bruise, took a helmet to the thigh, and it looks like it's like the deep bone bruise type because Dan Campbell, while he has said Dave Montgomery is day to day, Dave Montgomery last week after the game said, like, my leg hurts. I'm probably going to be out for a little bit. So we'll see. He picked up that uh, that deep bone bruise, taking a helmet to the knee um, in their team's week two overtime loss to the Seahawks. And Dave Montgomery said, like, I'm probably going to be out a couple weeks, guys. (laughs) It hurts. So. That's interesting to me my take on that situation is we know atlanta wants to control the game flow the game environment on the ground but we know that the lions are a little bit beat up and we know that they're capable of pushing a game environment on their own we also have Ross st brown who emerged from week two with an injury as well he had some cramping going on that's probably not going to affect his availability in week three we have Jamo, who is still out. We have Khalif Raymond, who the team—yay—they finally let him play some snaps. He played almost fifty percent of the offensive snaps and scored that long touchdown. This is a guy that this team needs on the field to stretch things, uh, stretch the field, and open up things underneath. For one, Jameer Gibbs, and two, Amon Ross St. Brown, and three, Sam Laporta, who are their three top pass-catching options in this offense. Without that ability to extend a opposing defense in the vertical. You're going to see safeties who are able to cheat down. You're going to see linebackers who are able to drop back and clog that middle of the field. So we've seen very limited upside from Jameer Gibbs with the ball in his hand from Amon Ross St. Brown with the ball in his hand and from Sam Laporta with the ball in his hand. These guys who we expect to be yak geniuses, but with David Montgomery out, Let's look at Jameer Gibbs real quick. Jameer Gibbs is a guy who Dan Campbell has already said, we are going to continually increase his involvement in this offense. He is a rookie. We're going to give him the time to develop and grow. And we've we've seen that. He played 27% of the offensive snaps in week one. That was up to 48% in week two. And yes, David Montgomery got hurt, and they brought in Craig Reynolds for 10 snaps. But if you were an NFL head coach and you had a rookie running back who was your 1B and your 1A got hurt in, a, in the second game of the season, would you look at him in the eye and be like, come here, Jameer. I know we haven't practiced the shit that I'm going to ask you to do, but I want you to go out there and do that football stuff. And I want you to do it well, damn it. No. It's most likely that they're like, let's not ask Jameer Gibbs to do something that we haven't practiced yet. How does that change going forward? They have a full week of practice to prepare for this game. Might Jameer Gibbs's snap rate increase again from 48%? Yeah. Might his run game involvement increase a little bit instead of just seven attempts in two consecutive weeks? Yeah. Might we see nine targets again, like we saw last week? Yeah. Jameer Gibbs is highly interesting to me this week. And I think around the industry, you're going to hear a lot of, oh, but Craig Reynolds played 10 snaps and he saw yada yada touches. I don't give a shit. That was probably by design. I'm not going to ask Jameer Gibbs to do something in his second NFL game that he has not practiced yet. And he's very clearly not practiced the between the tackle stuff yet heavily. That's my spiel on Jameer Gibbs. He's highly interesting to me in this week. I think that his role might be something that we see grow here. And he already has a game under his belt through two NFL games with nine targets. That's elite. He sees nine targets again. His median projection is going to be top 10 on this week. And he's not priced in the top 10 of running backs. He's priced at 6,600. So, oh yeah. So I guess he is kind of right around there. Got me guys. But this is a guy I'm highly interested in this week. I think that he has definite room to grow. Similar, Similar discussion here to Jordan Addison. That we had earlier in this show. Where Jordan Addison is a guy who has the talent. He has scored a touchdown in each of his professional games. Once his role grows. He is going to be. Providing like top 12 at the position weeks. Consistently. In this offense. Jameer Gibbs is the same. Cut from the same cloth. Once he he has the talent. Once his role grows. Look out. He's going to put the league on notice. That could happen in week three. Highly interesting to me from this game environment. Also from this game environment, we know we have the other rookie, Mr. Bijan Robinson. And a lot of people talking about his snap rate and his involvement in this offense and the fact that he's not seeing the goal line work. But this is a back who in his first NFL game saw 63% snap rate. That grew to 72%. In week two, and he actually shredded, absolutely shredded, my Green Bay Packers in week two. 124 yards on the ground on 19 carries. He did not find the end zone, but he is consistently one of the main targets in this low pass volume offense. Six targets in week one and a touchdown. Five targets in week two. This is a back who at some point, and he's just about there right now, is going to be priced up with the elites at the position. Saquon Barkley, God rest his ankle, his soul. Saquon Barkley, Bijan reminds me a lot of rookie Saquon Barkley. Eventually could work his way into an absolute lion's share of the work in this backfield. And a guy who has the talent, Watching him run, oh my god. Some of these runs that he put up in week one were in or in week two against the Packers. And yes, it's Joe Barry's Packers. Like, I mean, the pursuit and the coverage is not ever going to be the greatest. But Bijan was dancing through the tulips in week two. He made some defenders miss. And these are not poor tacklers. Joe Barry is one thing that Joe Barry is gonna make sure that happens is his his safeties and his linebackers can tackle. And Bijan made them look like they were on skates in week two. So he's the other primary piece from this game where I have interest. Yes, Amon Ross St. Brown is Amon Ross St. Brown. The matchup is not great. The, The Falcons have improved their defense dramatically. So while this game carries a nice hefty game total of 46 points, This is not a game environment where you have to account for, I don't think. That is primarily driven from the biases and people in the back of their mind thinking that this Atlanta defense is the same as it's been over the previous two or three years. No, this defense is vastly improved. Jesse Bates on the back end, one of the top safeties in the league was added. You have guys that were added up front in the linebacking core. This is a very different defensive look and one that is going to surprise some people this year for how well they play. I mean, look up front. They got Grady Jarrett, David Onyemata. They have Bud Dupree now, Calais Campbell, who can get after the quarterback, Lorenzo Carter, Arnold Ebikite. This team has some talent. The linebacking core, Caden Ellis. Um, Nate Landman was forced into some significant playing time in week two due to some injuries, uh, primarily to Troy Anderson. Um, But he's a capable NFL linebacker. look at their corners, A.J. Turrell, uh, Trey Flowers, D. Alford, and then their safeties, like we talk about, Richie Grant and Jesse Bates. This is a team that is going to surprise some people on the defensive side. So I don't see a need to really go uh, or attack this game environment. We know Atlanta is going to want to slow things down. We know that they're going to want to try and control the game environment on the ground. If going here, a very, very interesting way to play this game is to actually play both running backs. I think you can do so profitably this week. Bijan and Jameer Gibbs have that pass catching chops where they can be played together. And they could be the primary contributors to each respective offense in week three. So very, very interesting starting point. um, If attacking this game environment is to play both backs, we see that done at a very, very low frequency in today's current DFS landscape because of all those holdover theoretical pieces from five years ago, where we didn't want to be playing backs from the same game environment. That's very, very interesting to me. The final game we'll talk about is this Denver and Miami game. We saw some late game potential heroics from Russell Wilson last week, padded his stats a bit, got him over 300 yards, got him additional touchdown on that Hail Mary. They were just a two-point conversion away from tying it there in Washington, but ultimately fell short but Russ, man, moment of silence. He does not look good. It's not look good, guys. It's not. And I have I have a lot of him in best ball. He is one of my Scott Fishbowl quarterbacks. I got I got some Russ and he's not look good, guys. has not look good. Thirty four pass attempts in week one, that narrow loss to Las Vegas. Thirty two pass attempts in week two, that narrow loss to Washington But what we've seen from Sean Payton is he's not pushing the envelope on his own. He has been subject to game environment. We look at Las Vegas, they lost by one. Look at Washington, they lost by two. It doesn't matter, like they're they're not going out there looking to push the tempo and push the pace. This is a team who's kind of subject to what the opposition is going to be doing. So is Miami going to be pushing them? Okay, now we're talking. We got some. We got some room to breathe here. Miami might push them a little bit, but Russ, man, does he does he have another late game heroics in him against Miami? I don't know, dude. I don't know, but some of his he's got he's got his primary pass catcher back, and this is an offense that now can do, I think, some of what they wanted to do entering the season. Like, yes, they lost Greg Dulcich as well in week one, but Jerry Judy is back, and Jerry Judy only was able to play 68% of the offensive snaps in week two. We should expect that number to increase. One of my best ball darlings here, Mr. Marvin Mims. Marvin Mims had a little flop lag for us. He was one of the chalk wide receivers in week one. And then he pops off for a long touchdown, 60 yarder, catches both of his targets for 113 yards and one touchdown. This is who Marvin Mims is. This is a guy who had 22 yards per reception in college. He is that kind of one trick pony, but he's very good at it. He's very good at getting downfield, but we have room for pause here. He played only 27% of the offensive snaps in week one. Only 24% of offensive snaps in Week 2. Lil' Jordan Humphrey! Lil' Jordan! Humphrey! Played over Marvin Mims for the second consecutive week. Brandon Johnson! Who are these guys? Played over Marvin Mims for the second consecutive week. Now, Lil' Jordan Humphrey and Brandon Johnson are two guys who have been elevated from the practice squad twice. What does that mean? They have to be signed to the active roster now. If they are to play in week three. So keep an eye on the Denver Broncos. See what they do personnel wise. We could have a situation where they get signed to the active roster and they're playing 70% of the offensive snaps as Lil Jordan Humphrey did in week one, 50% of the offensive snaps as Brandon Johnson did in week one, 45% as Brandon Johnson did in week two, or This could be a situation where they have no other call ups and they don't sign them to the active roster. And now Marvin Mims has room to grow in that role. So keep an eye on that situation. We know that the Broncos are struggling with healthy pass catchers now. We know that Greg Dulcich is on IR. So keep an eye on that situation. Do they sign Lil Jordan Humphrey or Brandon Johnson or Philip Dorsett to the active roster? I don't know, but if they don't, or if they sign only one of them, or if they go into this game with four wide receivers, we could see Marvin Mims have that room to grow in that very, very downfield role. But on the other side of that game, we have Tua, we have Tyreek, we have Waddle. Waddle picked up a concussion. He is in the protocol, and we have no idea what to expect in these situations. They can get cleared. They cannot get cleared. We just don't know yet. We just don't know. So that's a situation to monitor. If Jalen Waddle is out, we're likely to see Tyreek Hill be amongst the highest ownership on the slate. We know he's capable of his week one performances, 215 yards, two scores, 47 and a half fantasy points. We know that's within his range of outcomes. We also know that If Waddle is out, we can expect a one Pat Sertan to be relatively following Tyreek Hill around. And we saw in week two that a very, very talented young cornerback in a good defensive scheme in Bill Belichick's defense was able to relatively keep Tyreek Hill in check. They doubled him a lot. It was Christian Gonzalez underneath and it was safety help over the top against Tyreek Hill, but that was highly, highly effective. And I have to think if I'm sitting in the Denver Broncos coaches meeting this week, my game plan on defense is revolving around how do we stop Tyreek Hill? But that was a quick down and dirty. We're going to stop it there and just our exploration for week three Again, apologies for being solo. Apologies for being in my closet. But we got to do what we got to do here. We got to get this content out for you guys. And we're going to press through it. You're going to see me every week on the first mover. And with that, we'll see you in them week three DFS streets. Peace.